You're listening to Vet Candy. And even even going over the results with some of those uh, those clients when when they say, "Well, I thought you said the ultrasound didn't show anything in the intestines." It's one of those things where you know just because it's normal doesn't always mean it's appropriate. This episode is brought to you by Credelio for Cats. Welcome to the Vet Mysteries Podcast. My name is Dr. Courtney. I'm a board-certified veterinary surgeon and fiercely devoted to pet and animal health. This podcast is powered by Vet Candy, a multimedia platform offering diverse veterinary content produced by veterinary experts and key opinion leaders. In this podcast, we unravel some of the most baffling and fascinating cases in clinical veterinary medicine. Please let us know how you feel about these cases. You can find us on socials at Dr. Courtney DVM and at MyVetCandy. Now, let's get started. When we talk about veterinary experts and key opinion leaders, when we talk about internal medicine, when we talk about the worst of the worst diseases, there is an internal medicine specialist that I really wanted to talk to. There's no one else when it comes to internal medicine that I would be more excited about talking to besides Dr. Forrest Cummings, internal medicine specialist. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Cummings. We'll be right back with more Vet Candy. Cordelio Cat Lodaloner protects your cat from ticks and fleas, so you can be close. Cordelio Close, the first and only of its kind. It's a small, tasty chewable that's easy to give. Lodaloner is a member of the isoxazoline class of drugs. The most common side effects are weight loss, rapid breathing, and vomiting. This drug class has been associated with neurological adverse reactions. Use with caution on cats with a history of seizures. Keep your cat close. Credelio close. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, I was excited when I got the invitation. Um, you know, I mean, obviously we go back 20 years now, man. So. Yeah, you know, in full disclosure, I wasn't going to tell anybody because I didn't want to ruin your reputation, but we are close friends. So I really, no, I, in all seriousness, I really appreciate you being here today. Uh, when I say that, uh, that I was excited to talk to an internal medicine specialist, I mean that from a professional standpoint, but I also mean that from a personal standpoint. You're an outstanding person and human being, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. And so, you know, if we do want to get super mysterious about it, we'll even go a step further and say that um, you had to tolerate me for a year as my roommate. I don't even know how to capsule, encapsulate that experience, but just saying very simply, I'm sorry, man. I'm sorry that you had to go through all of that, but you made it through. You made it through and you survived that year. And I appreciate that. Oh, yeah. No, it was, it was a fun year. It was our first year in vet school, man. That was a crazy time. Oh, it was insane because, you know, I think about, uh, you know, a young kid coming down from Connecticut, you know, that East Coast aura, that East Coast attitude, the East Coast feeling. And you're coming from Louisville, Kentucky, right at the time, right? Right. Right. So you've got this sort of clash of the worlds, right? East Coast and Kentucky. And somehow we made it work, you know, somehow we made it work. But it was we were learning you know, a brand new language in vet school, learning about different cultures and people. Yeah, it was a wild time, man. It was a really wild time. But before we get to that, listen, you and I can talk about this for a while. But before we get to that, I've asked you this question before, but share with the audience, what was it like where you were growing up? 
I grew up in the in Louisville. I grew up here. You know, moved away when I went to went to uh, UK for undergrad. But I mean, it was uh, we didn't have a lot of money growing up, so we were in the inner city, West End of Louisville, Kentucky. I, I didn't know any different. Like I didn't know that you know we were poor. I didn't know because everybody around me was poor. You know, I had a I had a good childhood. None the wiser, I guess they say. You know, I had a <laughs> I had a I had a great experience, and you know, I I try to carry that that experience into my kids' lives now. You know. It definitely gives you a different perspective on pet parents and, and animal lovers from all socioeconomic brackets and allows what I call sort of an increased access to veterinary health care. Well, when you walk into that office and there's someone who knows where you're coming from, what you've been through, the experiences, or at least has some similarity in their own life, I feel like it gives a, a much better experience. And so I, I do think that that is a blessing that you can bring that with you to veterinary medicine. I also wanted to ask you, this is what, that's what it was like growing up, but how did you know from that experience that you wanted to be a veterinarian? You know, I mean, I, I wanted to be one since I was about nine or 10 years old. Like I said, we had dogs growing up. Uh, most of them were stray dogs that we saw in the alley that we just happened to feed. You know, and they stayed with us, you know, but that was that was my animal experience. And I like it wasn't one particular dog. I think it was just all of it, you know, and it was, you know, we were pretty sheltered growing up just because of our our neighborhood. And so, you know, the things that were close to us were the animals. And I think it was just that natural curiosity, science mind that I had and, you know, putting that together and seeing this whole thing. I mean, it was just a natural attraction. Dr. Cummings had a laser-like focus on vet med because he realized early in life exactly where he was headed. Um, I didn't really know what else I wanted to do other than to be a vet. You know, I explored other options, but it was always a, well, if I don't get into vet school, I have to have a backup plan. You know, it was never, what do I want to do? I always knew what I wanted to do. It was pretty unique in that sense. You know, knowing what you want to do at such a young age. That's critically important is knowing what you want to do. And it is interesting because when you think about the experience of in veterinary medicine, one thing that I think is unique about of the many things that is unique about veterinary medicine in comparison to other medical fields, it is that that exposure to animals that can shape your experience. And so whether it's one animal or animals collectively that pushes you towards it, but then also that deep affection towards science. Right, because if your affection is just towards the animal, then that can kind of put you off into a different course versus having an affection towards the science too. To get really sciencey for a second, what led you to become a board-certified veterinary internal medicine specialist and help everybody out and understand what exactly that is? So, uh, an internist, um, which a lot of clients they'll they'll say you're an intern. <laughs> so, right, right, right. We got to get the well, nomenclature right. Right. But an intern is just someone who focuses on the, well, what it says on the internal portion of the animal, you know, and we're dealing with primarily diseases of the kidneys and the gastrointestinal tract and the pancreas. You know, we can deal with different types of cancers or lung disease, endocrine diseases like diabetes and Cushing's disease, thyroid disease. I mean, it's, it's anything you can think of that could happen internally with this animal, uh, we're kind of left with, you know, what can I do to make this condition or these conditions coexist happily? You know, how can we manage to navigate that disease or disease processes? 
Dr. Cummings' intellectual curiosity actually led to a change in his life plans. And for me, you know, I went into vet school, actually went into vet school thinking I'm going to get a, you know, get out of vet school, be a general practitioner. Um, I planned on having multiple veterinary general practices and first year hit and halfway through we had an animal, we had some sort of animals, animal clinical lab our first year. And, you know, I remember we talked about parvovirus. And I remember the way the case was presented to was in, in bits and pieces. Right. And I was just intrigued, like the, the whole, I don't know, detective process, so to speak. It was like, well, what, what piece are we missing here? And Dr. Bailey would give us a little bit more information. And I remember just thinking, wow, that was, a, that was pretty cool, you know, and, and you saw how it trying to navigate that disease. And in that case, it happened to be a new disease at the time, the way he presented it to us. They had just found out, and I think it's in the late 70s or something. But it was just that workup. And, you know, my brain has always been curious, you know. And so that solidified. I did not know that was internal medicine at the time. And then after my first year of vet school, you know, my mentor, Dr. Markham, he was like, so how was it? You know, referring to the first year. And I was like, it was pretty cool. It was this one class. And I told him about that Parvo case. And he was like, well, I'm going to hook you up with my, uh, my classmate. And his classmate was an internist, uh, Dr. Daly. And that's who uh, I worked with over the summers from that point forward. But I didn't realize I, I didn't know internal medicine existed until Dr. Markham told me I'm going to hook you up with my classmate. Well, that's fascinating. You mentioned detective work, and that's essentially what we're here to talk a little bit about today, the fact that you are a detective and you use that detective skills to really kind of to really figure out what's going on with a really with a really fascinating case. Talk to me a little bit about let's first start this before we start with this mystery. What is the name of the patient that you were seeing? Uh, His name is Morty. Morty. Okay. So you see Morty. And before we spoil the end, what, what was it like the day that Morty came into your hospital? And give, give us a signalman if you can. Yeah, Morty is uh, about 13 or 14 years old. He's a little domestic short hair cat. And he came to see me for, you know, chronic intestinal problems, chronic diarrhea, weight loss, occasional vomiting, Um, appetite kind of hit and miss, but he had been experiencing those symptoms for a couple of months before he came to, uh, came to see. I was looking at that case the other day, trying to get prepared for this, but he actually moved here from California. Morty is a 13 or 14 year old cat who moved from California. And how soon after moving from California did this kitty cat get to see you? Uh, It was about six months or so. In about six months. Now, when you first saw Morty, what went through your mind? What is he? What did he look like? He was a pretty big cat, uh, not overweight big, but you know, ten or eleven pounds. You know, nothing looked ill about it. You know, he did look sickly. Um, the owner is just like, yeah, I'm just dealing with this chronic diarrhea. His appetite's bouncing around, not consistent. No matter what I try to feed him, you know, we've tried to throw you know, medications to control the symptoms, nothing really resolves, you know, but if you just look at the cat, I mean, he didn't, he didn't look like, wow, this is, he's really 
doing bad. He's really doing poorly. You know, I didn't get that impression. Um, I mean, he had an old age, kind of that old stiff gait. You know, <laughs> but, right, right. but other than that, he didn't. He didn't look like a uh, a sick animal. Yeah, all you have to do is just say "old man cat," and I know exactly what you mean. What kind of walk you're talking about—that <laughs> yeah. old man cat walk. This is also a really can be a somewhat challenging conversation is gathering a relevant history or anamnesis from the from the family. And she says, I'm trying to deal with this diarrhea and I've been trying different courses of medications. And when you realize their frustration, when you can hear it in their voices that they've been battling this for a while, what do you say to a family like that when you're trying to just, you know, this is the first time you're seeing this case and you're trying to figure things out? Yeah, I, I generally, before I jump right into the reason they're there, I usually try to get, you know, a little bit of information about, well, I, I know why you're here. You know, that's obvious. You you filled out a referral form. <laughs> you know? right. So the, the big mystery is, you know, no mystery at all as to why they're in the hospital. But you know, I generally just try to find out more about what other things are going on with the animal. You know, that gives me a lot of information. Uh, it can help target my questions, um, you know, as far as, you know, is, is he indoor, is he outdoor? You know, just tell me about, you know, Morty's, Morty's life, you know. Uh, does he have other cats in the household? Has he always been sickly? You know, does he have any other issues that I need to be made aware of? Because all of that information, you know, as much as clients don't realize it, you know, it helps me to form the, an assessment. Dr. Cummings also elaborates on why the clinical signs of vomiting and diarrhea are not actually diagnoses. Just to say there's vomiting or just to say that there's diarrhea really in the grand scheme of things mean nothing to me. Right. Um, because so many things can cause vomiting. So many things can cause diarrhea. And, and so when I hear that, you know, a lot of clients think that, oh, well, it, it must be the intestine, you know, actually you have other things. So that's, that's I, a really important point. I don't want to interrupt you there, but that's so critical. And I'm so glad that you brought that up and that vomiting and diarrhea is not a diagnosis, right? It is a symptom or a clinical sign of a, a diagnosis. And so please go on. Some will think that vomiting and diarrhea is related to the intestine and sometimes it's not, right? Correct. Correct. So, yeah, I mean, it was, and that's the information that I just try to get from the owners. So, uh, you know, I'm just gathering, gathering history. You know, gathering history about the environment, gathering history about other problems that they may have. And now I can, once I get that information, I can make some of the the other stuff make sense. You know, what's the lab work look like that, that's been done? And, and you know, how am I going to formulate my game plan? You know, it's, it's now a little bit more precise to say, okay, now I see what's been done, what tests we have, what the results show me. And I got a little bit more information from you and with that, I think we ought to really go down this path. But yeah, that's a, that's thinking. super super important. That history that you gained, so so th those vital pieces of information, those morsels of information, and that's part of the reason why I think it's so critical that whoever is the caretaker for that animal it presents with the cat to the hospital because not to be glib, but these are important questions, and you know Morty's not going to answer them right, and so it's right. so critical that we we get this history from the primary caretaker. So you get that history, you get those morsels of information. So where do you go next? And, and how did you decide on that particular, as you say, game plan? 
Yeah, so after I got a little bit more information and uh, again, just trying to figure out what medications and things have been tried and what helped or didn't help, it obviously didn't help all the way or wouldn't come see me, uh, but, but try to quantify, you know, well, how long did this work, you know, before you saw that things relapsed? Like I said, I gathered that information and now I can say, okay, well, you know, we haven't had any updated, you know, what we like to call minimum database, you know. So it's been about four months because like I said, she had just moved there about six months uh, prior to seeing me. Um, and so she is, you know, was trying to find a vet in the meantime and fast forward, I think that blood work was probably about three or four months old at the time I had seen it. So, you know, I, when I have that situation, uh, the animal's still sickly. Dr. Cummings goes on to emphasize the need for current, up-to-date diagnostics. I kind of say, okay, well, here's the blood work from back then, but, you know, and, and that's the hard part. It's also trying to convince the owner, well, I just did that. Well, you did that last, but you didn't just do that. And that's kind of have to, uh, to uh, impress upon the clients is that, yes, I repeated this test, but a lot has happened in this time frame. And you said your animal's not better. So could it have been normal back then? And now when I recheck it, the things become abnormal. So you know, I just started with, because it had been a few months, I just started with getting another CBC and a chemistry panel, and a urinalysis, and checking his thyroid function, an ultrasound of his abdomen, um, and, and just started with that. You know, he had never had any any imaging to ultrasound, thoracic, I mean, uh, abdominal radiograph. So, I started with imaging, that was the one new test, but the one test I did start out with that was repeated was checking the red cells and white cells and chemistry panel, uh, your analysis. What would you say are the basic tools uh, for an internal medicine specialist to start making an assessment, you know, sort of like the hammer and screwdriver of th- their diagnostic protocol? Because if someone is saying, my cat's going through, going through a problem, and they say, we would like you to see an internal medicine specialist, it almost gets them an idea of what would they expect? What should they expect to bring their cat in for? What do you feel like are the building blocks of a diagnostic regimen with an internal medicine specialist? From a diagnostic standpoint, um, it's going to be still looking at, I need an overall assessment of how healthy their dog or cat is. And I need to look at the red cells. I need to look at the white cells. I need to look at the urine. I need to look at you know the the internal organs such as the kidneys and the liver and the electrolytes, um, pancreatic values, you know, thyroid in any older cat with with GI symptoms, you know, check the thyroid. So for medicine, I'd say that's probably a basic. Um, and now you kind of move into imaging because uh, remember everything's internal. So I need to get an assessment as to you know, what, what do the internal organs look like? Could I find something structurally abnormal with this ultrasound? Um, or if they come in for coughing, you know, well, let's, let's take some chest radiographs and see if we can see something over in the lungs, you know. And I just kind of use each diagnostic as a stepping stone to kind of jump off and pivot into what direction I need to. Dr. Cummings discusses why one approach for the same disease doesn't always work and why client communication is essential. All the while explaining to the client, you know, my logic. You know, I'm doing this 
because remember these tests that I ran? This is my thought process. And I try to walk them through it with me uh, because internal medicine can be so, I mean, it's just a mystery in itself. I mean, I can have the same disease as three different animals and, and manage them differently because you just can't blanket your treatments. You know, you can have templates, but, you know, this doesn't always apply to three different animals. Uh, are the same, I mean, three different animals, same template doesn't always apply. So they try to walk the client through each step of the process and and jump off into this is why I'm doing this and this is what I'm looking for and try to educate them along the way because it's a lot of information. And I try to, I think, any way that I'm helping them understand it as I walk through it with them. There's no doubt in my mind that you are absolutely helping them as you walk them through this journey. The question becomes, once you started to do these diagnostic tests, this cat has been, you know, this poor Morty has been ill for a while. And, you know, it's something they've been battling and trying out different medications. But now the next step in it is we're going to do these diagnostics in the hopes of getting what? Answers. What kind of answers were you getting from these diagnostics? And if you weren't getting any answers, what did you start to think? Yeah, so the blood work was honestly pretty boring, <laughs> which is, you know, it's a it's another way of saying it all looked normal. Right, um, the colloquial expression of boring, just so everybody yeah. knows, when you have a diagnostic that is boring, that's a good thing. You know, I used to have a mentor who used to say, hey, how's it going in there in surgery? And I used to say to my mentor, oh, it's really interesting. And my mentor used to say to me, I don't like interesting. And what I think <laughs> that mentor, what I think he meant by that is interesting generally means not a great prognosis. It generally means more advanced treatments. It more it generally means more uh, nursing care, more complicated cases for that particular patient, not good. So if you have something that is boring, that's good. Please continue. So the blood work was was pretty boring, which is also good and bad. It's it's can be frustrating to the <laughs> to the pet owner because what? I just paid for this and nothing's wrong, but normal doesn't always mean appropriate, you know? Um, and that's another thing that you try to try to tell people. The one thing I will say on the ultrasound though, uh, we did You'll see evidence of uh, very, very mildly enlarged lymph nodes uh, within the abdomen. Um, structurally, the stomach and intestine looked normal. And uh, there was evidence of pancreatic inflammation or pancreatitis. Before we talk a little bit about the lymph node elevation, pancreatitis, in that the intestines look structurally normal, I do want to back up to something you said that was critically, critically important. You said normal doesn't always mean appropriate. Would you mind explaining what that means for us? You know, and that's the one thing I'll say about internal medicine is, you know, when we look at blood values um, or or whatever value, you know, that we're we're assessing, whatever test, you know, there is a normal range of what things should be. Uh, but again, you're, you're you have to look at the big picture, you know. So when when I look at blood work. Uh, a lot of internists, we look at blood work uh, a little bit differently than a lot of other vets because we're trying to find, okay, yes, this blood work, everything is right down the middle of normal, but I have an animal who is experiencing these problems and this is inappropriate. Uh, this is not what this blood work should look like for this particular condition. Like I said, it, normal doesn't mean appropriate. So you just take it in light of the of the big picture of the clinical presentation and say, would I expect this in a sick animal or would I really expect this in a normal animal? 
Uh, so we're really, really looking at that blood work and looking at the ultrasound images and, you know, the intestines look normal, but, you know, I didn't have blood work that indicated we had kidney disease or liver disease or anything metabolically that will cause diarrhea. And I have an ultrasound with a normal looking intestinal tract, but chronic diarrhea. So now I'm thinking, okay, well, this is going to be something microscopic, you know, and that's, that was kind of my thought process. What did you make of the mildly enlarged lymph nodes in, on the ultrasound as you were doing them? What were, what was going through your head at this point? Again, it, it kind of pointed me into, especially after seeing the blood work, it pointed me into, you know, we have some degree of intestinal disease. What, you know, we still need to do more testing to find out. But when I see the lymph nodes were mildly enlarged, I mean, two big things come to mind. You know, this is either going to be a normal immune reaction to a chronic disease, meaning if you have diarrhea for months on end and occasional vomiting for months on end, your lymph nodes are enlarged unless you have something else, which we'll talk about, but your lymph nodes are enlarged because they're reacting. They're doing what they should be doing. Um, and we call that just that reactive lymph node. You know, when I'm looking at it, I was like, well, the cat's been having GI symptoms for some time, but this could be just the body's normal response to it, or this could be something more serious cancer, some infections, you know, they all can stimulate the immune system. I still see those things. Now, those things you're not going to see with your naked eye. You're not going to see it on an ultrasound. And so when I'm looking at the ultrasound, again, that's how I'm interpreting it. That's a really important point. So on your differential list are basically a list of things about the top things that this could be, these sort of enlarged lymph nodes or mesenteric lymphadenopathy with a normal looking intestine. Your The top of your list are things like infection, inflammation, uh, and inflammatory disease. And then would it, would it be fair to say cancer? Or are there other things that you're thinking about on your list at this point? Yeah, those, those would be the big three. Um, and again, those are the big three in a and an older animal, if he were younger, you know, I, I would prioritize that and I probably would not include a cancerous process, you know, or I guess I can't exclude it. I would tell the owners it's on the list, but it's not high on my list. So I, I take those differentials and prioritize it again, based on all of the information and try to present it to the owner in that way. You said in an older animal, you would not prioritize cancer. A younger, a younger, younger animal. animal. Okay. A younger animal, you would not prioritize cancer. So you, this is truly a mystery, right? This is truly a mystery. You're trying to unravel this mystery. You get these results back. And then to take a little bit deeper down this rabbit hole of this mystery, where do you go from there? Uh, so after this, I ended up doing uh, a test that's called a maldigestion panel, where we actually now are measuring vitamin levels that are uh, markers for intestinal health. Uh, for, you know, measuring cobalamin, which is vitamin B12, measuring Foley. Um, so, you know, we are, that was my next test is now I need to start really focusing in on the intestinal tract. I saw that the pancreas was already inflamed. It's physically connected to the intestines. And so a lot of times in cats, uh, about 25% of them will have concurrent pancreatic inflammation and intestinal inflammation. They go together, those two diseases, because they all help with the digestion process. So we measure pancreatic values, we measured vitamin levels, and sure enough, vitamin levels came back deficient. 
Yeah. So that let me know, okay, now the intestines, I know they're affected because of the symptoms, but now I know I have some deficiencies that at least I can start correcting um, by supplementing vitamin B12, you know, and talking to the owner about the next steps, you know, which at this point would have been to obtain GI biopsies or gastrointestinal biopsies, you know, potentially lymph node biopsies, and, and just kind of, again, using my previous diagnostic test to set the stage for what should happen next. You're at the stage where you're saying, okay, we clearly have, or it looks very consistent with possibly an intestinal lesion. That's the problem. That's where our enemy is, is that there's something going on in the intestine. And so we definitely need to get a sample of that intestine to find out what's going on. In your mind, there's probably a variety of ways to get a sample of the intestine. Number one, what methods are you thinking in your mind and why did you pick the one you did? Well, I'm thinking endoscopy. Uh, because that's what internists do, um, just taking a camera right into the <laughs> into the uh, mouth, down into the stomach and first part of the small intestine. You know, we could have done, you know, colonoscopy as well. Uh, that's generally the way that I start my diagnostics. But if I see things that would, you know, and I talk to the clients about these things with each case. Um, but when I see things where I say, well, I probably want won't serve you very well if I just do an endoscopy. You know, say I saw an intestinal mass, you know, that was pretty far down and endoscopy wouldn't even think about getting to it. You know, I'm going to go to surgery and get your intestinal biopsies that way. Um, it also allows them to look at the other organs and biopsy anything else that needs to be biopsied. So, you know, it, it kind of all depends on the particular case. You know, and, and the advantages and disadvantages to each of the, the ways to obtain those biopsies. Interesting. So we've got endoscopy as a sort of tool in our armamentarium. We've got a colonoscopy and then we've got full thickness biopsies by way of surgery. And so moving forward, you're trying to decide, all right, which which one of those tools do I use? And you pick endoscopy. But I imagine putting it talking to a family and saying, hey, we need to move forward by putting a camera down the intestine and take samples. For some people, that's a tough conversation or tough to hear. What was that conversation like with the family? And what did they say to you? Yeah. So when I initially presented it, um, it was met with a lot of resistance. Um, you know, like I said, I, I present both. I don't, you know, I'd again, try to tell them my thought process and, and each one in this particular case, the advantages and disadvantages. And of course, I'm almost always, the first question is, is well, what do you think we should do? And, and I want to say, I just told you what your options were. <laughs> no, but seriously, you know, I, when they give me that response, again, I just, again, go back to, well, in an ideal world, you know, we'd be getting biopsies so we can figure out the last piece of this puzzle. Dr. Cummings discusses the stepwise process he uses to help clients decide on how to proceed with diagnostics. I guess first you have to decide on if you want to do that. You know, do you want to get biopsies? Yes or no? You know, if yes, then you know, we'll figure out which one based on that particular animal would, would be ideal. So the first step is just trying to get them to say, yes, I want to do it. With Morty, she didn't want to proceed any further at this point. We're at that crossroads of, okay, well, I know what should be done, you know, in an ideal world, but you're met with reality, you know, and, and they say, yeah, yeah, that, 
that sounds like a, what should be done. And then they make you use your brain and say, well, what else? What else can we do? <laughs> so, so I'm just like, ah, I really wanted to find this out, you know, because my right. curious brain is, is trying to figure this problem out. And that's the fun part about internal medicine is, again, everything's not going to be cookie cutter. Um, and so you can present what would be an ideal diagnostic plan and then you're met with reality for various reasons why that plan doesn't always play out. You know, there was just a lot of, well, I don't know, this isn't going to work for me. He's 14. You know, it's just, you know, all of these questions that, that are not questions, all of these statements that they have and right or wrong, you know, it boils down to, well, I need to come up with something else to try to help out uh, that hasn't been done. Um, at the same time, I don't want to start something that, if she decides to change her mind, would alter my test results. So, you know, that's an internal struggle that I have to deal with and kind of sort through and say, well, what can I do? What can't I do to see if I can, you know, help? But again, not hinder any results if they do decide to proceed forward. Absolutely. And so, you know, you're trying to figure out how do I help and what what can I essentially do? Were you you were able to proceed with the endoscopy and how did that go? Yeah, so I was able to proceed about four months later. Four <laughs> months later. Unreal. Yeah. You were able to get your diagnostic test at four months later. And what do you think was the primary delay, primary hang up? Very simply put, was it financial? I don't think it was financial. Um, looking back on it, you know, um, it's not like the price has changed, you know, so I think it was just how much, and this is something that veterinarians have to kind of keep in perspective, you know, because it's easy to make a recommendation, but there are a lot of other factors that play into it, you know, besides money. And so when you, and speaking with the, the client, you know, she was just trying to figure out how much does she put him through. And uh, we had done, you know, diet trials and, you know, different medications. And ultimately she, like I said, did it. But, you know, there was looking back on it a lot more than just a financial obstacle, uh, which is a real thing that we all have to face within vet medicine. Um, but, you know, this was a, a lot of emotion. I don't want to hurt him trying to figure out an answer. You know, well, an endoscopy is relatively safe, you know. Um, well, I mean, what if he doesn't wake up from anesthesia? What if we don't find out the answer? If we do all of this stuff, then what? Um, you know, just a lot of the hypotheticals that, you know, I'm sitting here like, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Because, you know, you don't always know the answer to those questions. Uh, but there are questions that I'm asked on a daily basis. I, that's a that's one of the things that, you know, you kind of have to adapt to um, and probably medicine more so than internal medicine more so than like surgery for instance I, i'm gonna fix this dog's leg or i'm not gonna fix it you know? <laughs> there is there's a little bit of absolute uh, absolutism and, and a binary choice to some d diseases by by sure for sure when it comes to surgery the biopsy procedure seems to proceed fairly smoothly it is four months later at what point did you realize i've got a problem here yeah, it was when I got the biopsy back. Um, so about a week after, you get your report and you're like, oh, okay, let's see what the pathologist saw. Oh, intestinal lymphoma. Wow. Oh. 
and even even going over the results with some of those um, those clients when when they say, "Well, I thought you said the ultrasound didn't show anything in the intestines." It's one of those things where you know just because it's normal doesn't always mean it's appropriate. Explaining that to a lot of families, you know, well, I'm just I don't know because it's just that shock phase that they're in at this point. They hear a cancer diagnosis and and it automatically goes south. You know, everything's going to, you know, go downhill rapidly. I'm going to have a sickly looking animal, uh, you know, and, and at this point in time, I think he had lost about two pounds, which is pretty significant, you know, for a for an animal that only weighs 10 pounds, you know, to go down to eight. So he had lost about two pounds. Nothing was really working. Um, and then, you know, telling someone that their pet has cancer, you know, so their brain just it's gone. You know, they're trying that to is an inc- that. incredible. That's incredible uphill conversation. You get the diagnosis back. It says that this uh, Monty has intestinal lymphoma. And what did you say to the family and what was their response? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, she I mean, like any any person would, you know, was saddened by the news. You know, this was, you know, over the phone uh, when I got the report. So uh, but but you can hear the emotions in their voice. You know, you don't need to be physically there to know that they're they're struggling with this information. And a lot of times owners blame themselves. Oh, how, how come I didn't catch this soon enough? Why didn't we do this sooner? Why, if they could basically, if they could turn back time type scenario, you try to understand clients and that that shock and grief that they're going through and, and try to reel them back into reality. Yes, we have this diagnosis, but we have a plan, you know, and and luckily with gastrointestinal lymphoma in cats, it's cancer. Yes, it's a malignant process. And Ultimately, it, it may be terminal in many cats, but this particular form was not that aggressive. You know, it, it didn't come with an immediate poor prognosis. And, uh, you know, now you just have to impress that upon the family that, you know what, this, this is cancer. Yes, if you look at it for what it is. But the upside is this isn't a very aggressive cancer, which is probably why he's been hanging on for as long as he has been and not being treated for cancer. Um, and that that kind of puts people's mind at ease a little bit, makes it a little bit easier pill to swallow. But, um, you know, you're still navigating a cancer diagnosis. It know? really is a tough news to follow. And when you hear uh, that this is cancer, it can be so disheartening and such the emotions, you know, knowing that your companion that you've had for 13, 14 years now as a cancer diagnosis. But then when you hear that there may be a very thin silver lining to that cloud, which is that this is not an aggressive cancer, would you say that this diagnosis or this cancer, uh, intestinal lymphoma, is treatable? And if it is treatable, do you feel like it's very responsive to treatment? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely treatable. Uh, very responsive to, to treatment with the Pretty good prognosis, you know, about uh, one and a half to two years. So, one and a half to two years, median survival time or or sort yes, of the, yeah. I, I don't want to use the term average, but for those who are familiar with median survival time, if you have 100 kitty cats, uh, median survival time would be at the point where 50 of them would be alive and 50% 50 of them would not be. The, the question becomes, how do you treat 
a cat who has intestinal lymphoma? What what did you choose to employ in this situation? Yeah, so we ended up choosing uh, two medications. One, a steroid, prednisone, um, and then the other was a chemotherapy called um, uh, chlorambucil. And that treatment together with intestinal lymphoma, this particular type of intestinal lymphoma in cats, uh, comes with a pretty fair, what I would call fair prognosis. And, and medications are given by the family members at home. I just see them back for physical exams and, you know, just do some blood work, make sure they're tolerating things okay. That's the easy part, as long as they can medicate, <laughs> as long as they can medicate their animal. Uh, that's the easy part. Luckily, he's pretty easily medicated. So for him, it worked out wonderfully uh, as far as medications go. But this, in the grand scheme of things, this could not have been better, you know, as far as we have this cancer. But like you said, this is the silver lining. It's, that it's not that aggressive. And I've had multiple cats that have gone, you know, four or five years. And I, I've done nothing different for those, those cats. But when I tell families about that and tell them about, you know, other cats in the same situation and how they've done, they, they do feel comfortable, you know, and they feel like, OK, all hope isn't lost. You know, I can still have, you know, my my loved one here for quite some time. And, and I think that gives them a little bit of hope. And I think that I hope that a lot of them feel like, you know, it wasn't something that they missed. You know, that's that's another thing that I really try to hammer home uh, for the ones who feel really guilty about missing this. I didn't find it until I did an endoscopy. So why would you find it? And that's what I tell them a lot of times is that, well, you came here because something wasn't right. And we kind of walked through this together and I had to do this test and that test. And then we got our answer. So why would you, with someone without <laughs> without the training and the resources, figure it out? That's certainly your message to pet parents out there that please don't beat up on yourself. Please don't feel bad or depressed that you weren't able to ascertain this diagnosis quickly because as you can tell, it takes some difficult and complicated diagnostic tools and a whole lot of training, decades of training to really figure this out. What would be your message to young veterinarians or even not necessarily junior veterinarians, even those in the trenches right now who are diagnosing intestinal lymphoma in cats? What would be your one message to them to learn from Monty's case? Probably the one message, I mean, one that, you know, just because it's cancer doesn't mean that it's going to be over soon. I mean, some cancers, yes, they're not always this way, but you really have the opportunity to help them out, which is honestly why we did this. You know, we all are doing this to help out, you know, these animals. And, you know, I, I try to take those because a lot of my diseases that I deal with are not always good diseases, if there's a good disease, but you know, I'm, I'm constantly having to educate people. And that's what I like about, it. you know, I'm, I'm educating people on this is the problem. Yes, I cannot cure this problem. But, you know, I use those words like quality of life. We can still have a good quality of life, even though we have this condition. And, and I try to, like I said, just educate them along the way. So I try to take that negative, you know, diagnosis and really find the positive spin on it. That's what I enjoy about it. You know, that's that is because we have this doesn't mean that you know we have to sit here and cry about it every day because we can we can still make a difference. We can still make a difference, man. I really, if 
feel like that message is so critically important. And it's one that I want every veterinarian and every veterinary technician and every veterinary health professional to think about at every moment with every client, with every patient, we can still make a difference. That is from internal medicine specialist, Dr. Forrest Cummings. Listen, I mean, I just want to get one last update. How is Monty doing right now? Oh, doing great. Doing great. Yeah, he's doing great. He's that doing is great. wonderful news. That is wonderful news. He's still on medications? Still on medication. Uh, I actually refilled it about a month ago. <laughs> so. Refilled it about a month ago. That is good. So you are definitely making a difference. Well, listen, everybody listening, including myself right now, is sending healing energy out to Monty right now. And uh, we really want him to just continue the feeling like a cat and continue live, living his best cat life. So uh, listen, I am like beyond energized after hearing about you unraveling this mystery step-by-step, process-by-process, breaking it down for us exactly why you did what you did. A lot of mystery there because you're dealing with diagnostics that came back essentially, as you say, boring and trying to figure out what is, as you say, just because it's normal doesn't mean it's appropriate. And that is certainly something that I really want everybody to take home with them from this conversation. Dr. Cummings, man, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Thank you for sharing that case, Monty. And thanks for being such a good detective when it comes to being an internal medicine specialist. If we do a round two, would you be open to coming back? Yeah, absolutely. 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 Before we, before we go. It's all a mystery. <laughs> it is all a mystery. Before we go, um, would you mind letting everybody know if they did want to find out where you work, a little bit more about you, where could they find you? Uh, yeah, I work at uh, Blue Pearl, Louisville, Kentucky. I am not really on social media, man. I'm not really That's on. Amazing. I, don't, I don't have a handle. Follow my wife, Joy Cummings, Joy Griffin. And uh, <laughs> I love that. I love that. He says he's not on social media, folks. This is this is absolutely beautiful because, you know, as they say, so many great things are possible when you don't have a Facebook account. No, I'm kidding. This shout out to all those on uh, socials. And uh, this has been wonderful. Thank you again, Dr. Cummings. I really appreciate it. And I look forward to the next time we get the chance to chat. All right, man. Thanks. It was nice seeing you. Nice seeing you, too. We'll be right back with more Vet Candy. Cordelio Cat Lodolaner protects your cat from ticks and fleas, so you can be close. Cordelio Close, the first and only of its kind. It's a small, tasty chewable that's easy to give. Lodolaner is a member of the isoxazoline class of drugs. The most common side effects are weight loss, rapid breathing, and vomiting. This drug class has been associated with neurological adverse reactions. Use with caution on cats with a history of seizures. Keep your cat close. Credelio close. There you have it, folks. You got to hear from Dr. Cummings, internal medicine specialist out in Louisville, Kentucky. Got a chance to talk to us about Monty, a cat who had intestinal lymphoma, but that diagnosis only was achieved through diligent and methodical process of the diagnosis of essentially unraveling this mystery. We could have thought it was possibly an inflammatory bowel disease or maybe an infection. And unfortunately, it came back as intestinal lymphoma. But the key that Dr. Cummings mentioned is at every step, 
you can still make a difference. So we definitely want to give a big shout out to him for joining the podcast. And as always, thank you for joining the Vet Mysteries podcast. Remember, there is nothing stronger than the human-animal bond. Please take care of your pets and each other. Vet Candy. Vet Candy. Vet Candy. It's Vet Candy Radio.